I'm Brian Scordato, and this is the Idea to Start a Podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. We accelerate ideas into real companies through the Tacklebox membership, and we think through startup strategy every Wednesday on the Idea to Start Up Podcast. You're here because you're thinking about an idea, or you're ready to launch something, or you already launched something and you're running full steam ahead. We're here to help with the counterintuitive stuff. On to it. Today, we're going to talk about community, specifically whether you should build a community-based startup or have community as a key fixture of your startup or tack on a community at your corporate job like you're playing pin the tail on the donkey. This might seem a bit specific, and it is in that we're going to go deep into community as your whole business or as a part of your business today. But I'm still confident it'll be relevant to most of our listeners for two reasons. First, the types of companies people seem to be building these days nearly always have some piece of community attached to them, or they're just straight-up community-driven businesses. We'll get into why that is and why there are worse ideas in a minute. And second, in the same way that all of our episodes are about startups but also not about startups, today's episode is about building a community as a product or an extension of your product, but it's also not about those things. At its core, the episode is about making people feel a certain way, about why people do things and what they actually get from interacting with each other, about status, about incentives, about divorced dads and the Catholic Church and CrossFit and freelancers and monks, and just a little bit about Justin Bieber. But we'll get to all that. The first question to ask is, why are so many people interested in building communities? And the answer is that a community, when it works, is the perfect product. If you can organize a group of people who interact consistently, get value from each other, are proud to be in that group and grow and foster it on their own, that's a foundation that supports anything you want to build on top of it. Community First is also the Jedi route to raising money, which is another reason it's gotten popular. The two hardest things you're going to do as an entrepreneur are finding people to sell stuff to and earning enough of those people's trust that they'll buy that stuff from you. A community is finding the people and building the trust before you've got the product. When you lead with community rather than product, you check the two hardest boxes first, and you do it for cheap. Since you still haven't built a product, you're using free or inexpensive community tools like Discord or Slack or Meetup or Facebook groups. Angels and VCs love investing in entrepreneurs who have led with community because, again, you've already done the hard part. Making a product is a commodity. What's actually scarce in today's economy is attention and trust. Capitalizing and monetizing on that attention and trust, once you've got them, is straightforward. Getting the attention and trust in the first place is not. Nothing de-risks an opportunity like a community. It's the holy grail, and that kind of rhymed. But building one is hard as shit and counterintuitive and all the other startup things. So we're going to dig into it today. Let's check out some successful communities and distill the core elements that made them successful, the magical things they did that you'll need to do too to make the community click. Let's figure out a quick and mostly painless way for you to test your community this week. And finally, let's start a community for lonely dads because I've got to be honest, I'm getting like four emails a week from people trying to help lonely dads. It's not exactly the boost I need going into my first child being born, but maybe the community is going to help. And let's do it all after... We talk about these monks I saw in Central Park the other day. It's too early for the smooth jazz. Don't rush it. New York City is unique. There isn't a more cliche thing to say, but there also isn't a more accurate thing to say. 
The other night, the night with the monks, I went on a walk with my wife and Ruby. Earlier that day, I'd done a quick midday spin around the block with young Rubes, and in a 15-minute window, I saw the woman who played Aaron from the office, and she looked so familiar that I reflexively waved, which caught her off guard, but she did wave back. Then I overheard two people who have to be in their mid-80s and sit in fold-out chairs outside the bodega on 87th Street every day in an animated argument that almost came to blows about whether this year felt windier than last year. And then, as we were turning onto our block, I saw a mime, in character, face painted and everything, walking down the street doing mime things, like pulling on a fake rope trying to get people to walk towards her. All the while, she had a sign around her neck that said, Save the Sharks, in big letters. Beneath it was a smaller sign that said, I don't speak because sharks can't speak either. I don't like telling anyone how to eat their Cheerios, but isn't that a great opportunity for literally anything other than a mime? If the sharks can't speak, wouldn't you want to speak up for them? Why is silence the thing to be in solidarity with? Seems counterproductive. Also, there was no call to action, just quiet awareness for sharks, I guess. I'm talking about it, so maybe it worked. As I said, New York City is unique, and I've got to get these stories in before I move to Connecticut and all my stories become about people in vests or whatever it is that people do in the suburbs. So anyway, my wife and I are walking Rubes in Central Park and it's starting to get dark, which means it's time to get home. On our way out, we saw two monks strolling into the park about 50 yards away. My instincts were to run over and tell them not to go in. It was dangerous. They might get robbed. Someone closer beat me to it. They didn't react. I guess monks don't and they walked on in. My wife and I then realized that, in a way, they're probably the safest people in the city. Everybody knows about monks. Everybody knows they don't own anything. That's the whole point. You don't need anything external, which means that no one would ever rob a monk. What an interesting feeling that's gotta be. You can't lose anything if you got nothing to lose. Monks are part of a community, a powerful and enduring one that's been around since the third century. Being a monk means something very specific, and when you're a monk, you dedicate your life to that thing. Every decision you make is driven by it. Communities can be powerful. So if we're going to build a community, let's model ours after the strongest ones, the ones that have lasted and become part of their members' identity. Because no one joins a community if it doesn't dramatically amplify something about themselves they really like, if it doesn't solve a huge problem for them, if it doesn't improve their social status. Even the people who become monks. We'll get into it. After, a little smooth jazz. For real this time. If you've got a startup idea and a full-time job and want to test out the former before you leave the latter, come and work with us. Apply at gettacklebox.com. Over 400 startups have tested and built ideas through our program, and those businesses are now collectively worth over a billion dollars. Our program helps you prioritize and execute, and our members and me and the team keep you accountable and give you feedback along the way. Come build with us at GetTackleBox.com. Back to it. We'll start off by clarifying the type of community we're talking about today. Athletic Green sent me a well-formatted email the other day welcoming me to their community after my first supplement purchase. That's marketing. That's garbage. I'm not part of the Athletic Greens community. I'm someone who fell for their branding and aesthetic and heard them on 900 podcast ads, and now I pay 80 bucks a month for a multivitamin. And if you too want to start your day right, Athletic Greens promo code idea to start a... Just kidding. But if anyone from AG is listening... Today, we're referring to community as a product, as a thing that customers will pay for, something that can stand on its own, a monthly expense that hopefully isn't ever considered to be a potential cut. That means your community needs to solve a real problem. 
As you know and remember, great problems, problems worth solving, are a few of painful, frequent, urgent, growing, expensive. A great problem has a customer that's already trying to solve it. That customer knows the value of solving the problem. They can quantify it. They can envision it. They can share it. They know other people who have the problem, and all of those people have a similar expectation of value as they do. Great products are the result of great problems with great customers, and communities are no different. But people treat them differently. In the past couple of weeks, I've been pitched a community of people trying to lose weight together, a community of people running a marathon together, a community of people getting out of student debt together, and a community of people that own Vishlas, the dog. When I asked each about what problem they were actually solving, they all said that it was hard for the people they were building the community for to find each other. Their community would help them do that. The problem was discovery. When I asked if these customers were already trying to find each other or had already found each other and formed other types of communities, the answers were all over the map. People losing weight, at least the ones this entrepreneur had spoken to, weren't. His customer had been an ex-college athlete and had gained 20 to 30 pounds when they hit the wrong side of 35. They were usually trying to just get back to old habits and weights and activities. He was trying to get them to join a community. The people running a marathon were often already parts of communities. Running clubs for first-time marathoners, people who wanted support on long runs, people new to cities, single people. There were cuts of every different type of marathoners, and there were clubs for each. The people getting out of debt weren't in any communities. They were usually embarrassed, anxious, and lost. The Vishla owners were in communities, sort of. They were in WhatsApp groups with other Vishlas or active dogs, and they met a few times a week to run their dogs together. When I dug in with the entrepreneurs whose customers weren't trying to find each other already, when I asked why they thought it'd be good to connect them, the answers were all about how it'd be great for the entrepreneur, not great for the customers. The weight loss guy had been told by a VC that to prove the concept a bit, he should create a community where his customers were actively paying to lose weight together. This would build trust and lead to the other paid product, the real idea, which was an AI virtual coach that kept people on track via text message. Yeah, of course, that's great for the VC. If you can do that crazy hard thing that completely de-risks the opportunity, they'll consider investing. What a job. The entrepreneur helping people get out of student debt had a similar reason. If they could aggregate all of these people getting out of debt, she'd become a trusted source and could sell them her actual product, a credit card and associated financial app for Gen Z. In nearly every case, the community was a transparent tool to help the entrepreneurs solve their own problem, which was that they couldn't get customers excited enough about their core idea, and this might be easier. They were quickly finding it was not. This leads us to two really important points about community. First, it's a product. It solves a problem for a customer desperately in need of that outcome that the product would create. And second, it's unlike most other products you'll build. You build a credit card to help a customer solve a problem. You build a community to help your customers help each other. It's a great distinction I first saw made by David Spinks in an article I'll pop in the show notes. Not to belabor it, but I think it's worth repeating. David writes, quote, to build an audience, you help people. To build a community, you help people help each other. For a community to work well, there needs to be a real problem that's solved by the members of the community for each other. This makes things feel a lot trickier. When I asked the person running the credit card if the community of people who were in student debt could help each other, she replied that they could through support, motivation, and potentially even sharing tips that have been helpful. 
The founder was starting the credit card company because she'd been in enormous debt and she'd pulled herself out. When I asked if she would have wanted a community of people when she was in the same spot for support and motivation and education, she replied, definitely not. Hmm. Most community ideas are that flimsy. For a community to work well, the members all need to be pretty close to the same place in life, but still be able to really help each other. That's a tough needle to thread. A good sanity check early on is to see if you have an answer to a simple equation. Your customers plus interactions with each other equals what? Is that thing something crazy, impactful, useful, and tangible to their bottom line? Is it impactful to their status level? Is it magical? If not, you're in trouble. And it's why you likely don't belong to very many communities, because they're hard. So what's the secret? How do you unlock them? Well, it's time to talk about status. There's a quote I love by Alan de Button that goes, if one felt successful, there'd be no reason to be successful. And I definitely butchered that guy's name, but we're going to move on. Whenever an opportunity arises for someone to feel more successful, to increase their social standing, to be associated with something that reinforces who they want to be, they're going to take it. And that is what great communities do. It's not a good thing or a bad thing that people want to increase their social status. It's just human nature. We're all status jumping machines. I've talked a lot about how the best products are magical and about how magic is actually pretty straightforward. Magic is when you take an existing process and you remove steps. In the community world, that magic, the removing of steps, is related to status. One of my favorite community examples to come through Tacklebox is called Freelance Founders. It's a community of super talented freelancers. They've been successful enough to go out on their own and make a great living at it. They love flexibility. They love not working at an agency, choosing what they work on, taking home a higher percentage of the money they make. The community allows them to collaborate. Lots of projects need more than a designer or a copywriter. The community allows them to help each other complete work. Together as a collective, they attract more work. And the status of being chosen for freelance founders, it's an application only in highly selective community, allows them to increase their hourly rate. And the problems freelancers encounter happen constantly, week after week, getting work, filling in the gaps for work, sharing the work, financials around it, getting customers to pay, and on and on. And the platform allows them to help each other with those issues. Freelance Founders is paid. It's got basically zero churn, and it's got a waiting list out the door. That is a community. It's solving an urgent, frequent, painful, and expensive problem for its members. It's solving a growing problem for the market as more people move towards freelancing and more people hire freelancers for jobs. The repetition of positive engagement between members builds the brand and reduces churn. There's data around these sorts of interactions that says if you have something like 6 to 11 consistent interactions, the perceived value dramatically increases, as does the stickiness of a product. Reps of helpful interactions drive a community, and Freelance Founders has plenty of reps. The magic of Freelance Founders is in its ability to help its members skip steps. The support they get from the community would be nearly impossible to replicate outside its walls. So these freelancers go from a talented, creative person working alone to a talented, creative person whose work is amplified, network is full of people as talented as they are to collaborate with, and whose bench of peers running into the same problems, both logistical, mental, and emotional, is deep. It's brilliant. Carolyn, the founder, has done a wonderful job with it. But all great communities don't look exactly like freelance founders. 
Alcoholics Anonymous is a great example, and it maybe counterintuitively also helps members jump status levels. When you join AA, you move from someone with a drinking problem to someone actively solving their drinking problem. The support group and facilitator keep you on track. The repetition is the value. Great communities often have clear guidelines to help people digest the status leap. Some religions have the Ten Commandments. Joining those religions helps you jump status from someone whose morals aren't clear to someone who lives their life by a specific set of rules. Our monk friends in Central Park have five main rules, but 227 total that help them jump status. And if that seems odd, again, status isn't a bad thing. It's just a representation of how someone presents themselves and is seen by the world. When someone is a monk, that's a shortcut to understanding what they prioritize. It's a shortcut to showing the world who they are. CrossFit has their own secret language. Wads and Metcons and kettlebells and Tabatas and not having any friends. Just kidding. I feel like CrossFitters get disproportionate amounts of grief these days. But when you step into that world, you're working out a few times a week. Again, lots of helpful interactions, reinforcing the community and the skipping of steps. Before, you were just some person a few pounds overweight. Now, you train like an athlete. It's magic. That is why people don't shut up about it. There's a great and only slightly pretentious quote I like by Pierre Luigi Nervi that goes, Beauty does not come from decorative effects, but from structural coherence. The structural coherence of a community allows people to opt in and jump status and can be as big a value as the actual tangible help from members. A successful community is able to pull people together who would have had a hard time connecting otherwise, but once they are connected, are able to help each other consistently. Now, let's test one out. As I mentioned, I get a pitch or so a week now about how lonely dads are, or more about figuring out how to help dads connect with each other. The emails all start with something like, quote, I had a great group of friends, but then I had kids, I moved somewhere, and now all my friends are my kids' friends' dads, which is fine, but I really like fly fishing and riding my bike, and I don't know anyone who does that. Then they pitch the community of dads. The way to test out a community is the same way that you test out anything. You start with the critical assumptions, and you work backwards. If we start with dads as our customers, we're going to get ourselves in a lot of trouble. We can't spend two hours and 250 customer interviews segmenting them out. So I'm going to take one of the most interesting subsets of dads we've had pitched and run with that, divorced dads, in, say, Westchester County, New York. Our hypothesis is that divorced dads in Westchester will pay for a monthly membership to get access to a group of other divorced dads for support, companionship, and activities, and that this will increase their status. If you're a loyal ITS listener, maybe you're recognizing the hassle premium from a few weeks ago. Is the hassle of organizing the people in the community worth paying a big premium for for the members? I've been throwing price points around in my hypotheses lately, and I like it. It gives some structure around sizing. So let's say that these dads are going to pay 100 bucks a month or 1200 bucks a year. Maybe that sounds expensive, but you got to realize you would need 100 dads paying $100 a month just to get to $120,000. Forget about acquisition costs, overhead, salary, etc., etc. Communities are like any other product. Start high on price, charge a lot. If the community isn't worth $1,200 a year for them, it's probably not worth your time to build. The critical assumptions then are, one, divorced dads will pay 100 bucks a month for a community. Two, divorced dads will get consistent value from interacting with each other in the long term, months and years. Three, you'll be able to find these dads at a reasonable price. And four, 
you'll be able to facilitate a community. Okay, we're rolling now. I would start by testing the first and third assumptions together. First was that dads would pay. Third was that we would be able to find them. For messaging, I'd lead with inflection points, the dams in the river. What are the big problems dads would pay a hassle premium for to be solved and could be solved by other dads? Maybe it's the activity thing. Maybe it's fly fishing. So maybe I organize a fly fishing outing for divorced dads. Maybe the pitch is a community of divorced dads who do activities together each month. Maybe I put flyers up at the fields for kids' soccer games, maybe near the school. I charge an amount for each event, plus say that the event requires a two or four or 12 month membership subscription for $100 a month. I might tease a second event as well as a Slack channel, that feels like a dad channel, to meet other divorced dads nearby. Then I'd see how many signups we got and I'd run the event. I'd get feedback then offer a six month subscription with a discount to everyone who attended. I'd have a number in my head. If overhead for the business was 100K a year, I would need 40 prepaid year-long memberships within the first three months to move forward. Or I need 80 people paying 100 bucks a month, month by month, to move forward. And if you only get 15 people to pay you 1,000 bucks and you can't get any more, what do you do? You give them their money back and you shut it down. It's not the end of the world. Now, running a community is a totally different thing. That's a pod for another day, but it's doable. The hard part, as always, is trust and attention. If you've got a community idea, get your hypothesis, get your assumptions, run your test. It's just like a product. See if this puppy's got legs. Because again, if it does, there is no better product than a community. None. Oh, and yeah, I mentioned Justin Bieber in the intro. What's he got to do with it all? Honestly, I forgot. Sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night when I'm mapping out a pod and jot down notes on a notepad and they get a bit scrambled. This one says Justin Bieber 1% and then maybe a river and dam diagram, possibly a picture of Ruby. Anyway, if I remember, I'll put it in the next episode. And I do realize that it's a bit odd that a startup example with Justin Bieber came to me in my dreams. All part of the job. This was the Idea to Startup podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. If you've got a startup idea and a full-time job, particularly one built around a community, come join us. We'll get the thing fleshed out. Head to gettacklebox.com to apply. And if you like the pod, leave us a rating and a review. It makes an enormous difference for helping people find us. Have a great week.